All right, good morning, Roots family. How are we all doing? Good, good. Well, my name is Durr. I am one of the pastors on the teaching team, pastoring residents here at Roots. It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm going to start this morning by um, sharing about when Alice and I were, 10 years ago now, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary this July. We actually were, we were going to fly out to Mexico for that, but some of you know the story. I ended up having this uh, infection in my neck, and we had to go to the ER, so I couldn't, we had to cancel the whole trip. That's besides the point. We were uh, talking about how our wedding was going to be planned 10 years ago. So we were engaged, and uh, see, this is actually a pretty common cultural challenge within the Hmong community. My family grew up in a uh, non-Christian, shaman, animist family background. Alice grew up in a uh, pretty conservative Hmong Christian context. And so when it came time to which uh, cultural rituals we were gonna perform at our wedding, we had a bit of a, uh, of a tension going on, slight disagreements. And uh, just to get some context for what animism or shamanism kind of implies. Um, a lot of the world religions, uh, you know, they, they see kind of all things physical and uh, spiritual kind of as like interrelated as one. So that's what animism was. It sees that this, there's a spiritual realm which directly impacts the physical realm. And um, they also believed that everything in nature has a spirit, whether that's an animate being or creature or an inanimate object. And so if you practice shamanism or animism, then uh, it would do you well to earn the favor of all the spirits around you. And you would perform ritual offerings to earn favor from the spirits that are around you. So for example, how many of you have ever gone into a Vietnamese restaurant or some kind of Asian restaurant and you see like a shrine with uh, a little bowl, maybe there's some rice in there and there's some oranges or fruits and some incense. That's what that is. That's, that's a bowl of real food offered to the spirits of that place. And so my side of the family wanted to perform a lot of these rituals. Um, one of them was going to be uh, the, the topic of an animal uh, meat sacrifice to the spirits. And so Alice and I were having the conversation of, if my family does this, if, if we uh, do sacrifice meat to the spirits, will we eat that meat at our wedding? Will we partake in that? And uh, there were some things that I was willing to do, you know, because I wanted to honor my tradition and my side of the family. But as a follower of Jesus, you know, I also knew that there were some things that I I wanted to refrain from doing. But I do think of 1 Corinthians 8.4, where the Apostle Paul talks about concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods. We know that a false god isn't anything in this world, and that there is no god except for the one god. Amen? So our wedding came, and we ended up not doing a lot of the animistic uh, ritual offerings. Um, and I was totally fine with that. I was fine with that. Again, we wanted to start our marriage um, in the trajectory of honoring both our tradition and my family side, but also honoring God and honoring the way of Jesus. Um, 
But we still had a good Hmong food. We had, Alice was in her uh, wearing traditional Hmong clothing. At the end of our clan negotiations, one of the elders on her side of the family performed this Hmong folk song that was really cool. This was like at one in the morning by this point. So the negotiations took all day. And at the end of it, he closed us out with this folk song to kind of set us off. Um, after that song, then the, a lot of the men in my family started to um, butcher this pig carcass that we had brought for this moment. That once the negotiations were done, we would chop up this pig and uh, have, eat, cook and eat at 2 a.m. It was, it was an all-nighter. It was a, quite the festivity at that time. So that, that marked our, uh, the start of our Hmong American wedding. And that was 10 years ago. So, praise God. <laughs> and uh, okay, so today we are continuing in a two-part sermon series, uh, sorry, a two-part sermon called uh, The Weak and the Strong. And this is from the Book of Romans. It's actually part of the larger uh, sermon series that we've been in. Uh, we're calling Subversive Peace, Reading Romans Backwards. Last week, Pastor TC talked about who the weak and the strong are in the local house churches in Rome. And we recall that the weak were primarily Jewish Christians who were used to following instructions of Torah or the law. And this included eating certain foods, certain kosher diets, circumcision, and observing certain uh, days of the calendar year. For Jewish Christians, following instructions of Torah was uh, that they knew um, was what they knew all their lives. So this was their identity marker, was to follow Torah. The strong, on the other hand, were primarily Gentile Christians, or Gentiles also uh, known as called the nations. So I use these two terms interchangeably, Gentiles and the nations, because they uh, essentially mean the same thing, that the non-Jewish ethnic groups of the world. And the Gentile cultural practices in the church in Rome, or the churches in Rome, just to kind of put it simply, reflected the broader Roman culture a little bit more than the Jewish Christians did. So the Gentile Christians, they didn't have an issue with eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, and again, Paul talks about how there is no actual idols or false gods. All food are unclean. So for the, for the strong, they could eat this food with a clear conscience, but it became a stumbling block for the weak. And we saw that Paul calls these two factions, Jews and Gentiles, to belong to one alternate home, namely the household of Christ. Because the household to whom you belong will shape your primary identity and way of life. So that was the, that's a recap of where we were last Sunday. This morning we're going to pick up in Romans 15, verse 5 through 13. It's going to be displayed on the screens behind me, but if you have your phone or a Bible with you, you want to follow along that way. Romans 15, verses 5-13. May the God of endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude toward each other, similar to Christ Jesus' attitude. That way you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together with one voice. So welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. 
I'm saying that Christ became a servant of those who are circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the ancestors. And so that the Gentiles could glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, because of this I will confess you among the Gentiles and I will sing praises to your name. And again it says, rejoice Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all the nations, all the people should sing his praises. And again, Isaiah says, there will be a root of Jesse who will also rise up to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will place their hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in faith so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us quickly before we move on this morning. Lord, you are merciful and you are compassionate. And God, you desire to draw near to us. Lord, we invite you into this time. God, would you come? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear from you today, God? That is our desire, that, to, that we would encounter you this morning as we read from your word, as we read from scripture. May we be transformed by it. It's in Jesus' name that we invite you in this space. Amen. So here in this text, we see Paul is instructing the weak and the strong. He's instructing us who have different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds, to share these two things with Christ. The same attitude as Christ, and to welcome each other in the same way that Christ welcomes us. So what was Jesus' attitude? I love how when Paul isn't quite sure that we've understood him correctly, he offers kind of these little commentaries on his own writings. So he says, I'm saying that Christ became a servant of those who are circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the ancestors. Christ's attitude was that of a servant so that God's blessings might go out from Israel to the nations. What about welcome? What role does welcoming play in all of this? I love what Scott McKnight writes in the following. He writes, Welcome is the lived theology when division is the problem. Welcome is the lived theology when division is the problem. According to McKnight, this implies a lifestyle of Christoformity, where Christoformity is the process of being conformed to Christ, especially in regard to Jesus' self-sacrificing character. Christoformity is the process of being conformed to Christ in his self-sacrificing, self-giving, and self-denying character. Friends, Christoformity does not come natural for us. We are born and raised in a world where everything around us and everything in us teaches us that we are to serve ourselves. 
But the radical way of Jesus is the laying down of self. We see this earlier in Romans 5 where this is how Jesus relates to the weak. It says in Romans 5, 6, While we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. So Jesus' attitude and his welcome towards us is one of a servant, even a servant to the point of death. And Paul seems to be fervently praying here that God would give you all, that God would give us the same attitude of Christoformity, this gift of Christoformity. But we kind of wonder why this urgency, why such a fervent prayer for, for unity, why such a strong exhortation for uh, unity between Jew and Gentile? What's really hanging on the line? What is this really ultimately for? Why didn't Paul just say, you know what, if you want to keep kosher, worship at that house. If you want to eat whatever meats, go worship at that house. Why couldn't he have just said that? Why does he seem to say, don't do that. At all costs, stay together. I mean, because Paul, don't you understand, Paul, as someone who grew up in the Hmong Christian church, I can't eat meats sacrificed to the spirits. I can't do the same things that a Hmong shaman convert might be able to do because of his or her clear conscience. Paul, don't you understand? I grew up in a certain Christian tradition where our group must emphasize X, Y, and Z when we worship. As someone who grew up in a rural church, Paul, don't you get it? I don't know how to relate to people in the inner cities. Don't you understand? We're just all too different, Paul. No one is better than the other. We just are too different. This will never work. Why are you so disillusioned to keep urging us to do this, to come together in local churches? That's not how the world works, Paul. It will cost us too much. It will be too confusing. It will be too painful to give up our cultural preference and our privilege for the other. Paul, I thought you just meant unity in some abstract universal sense, right? Not here at the local church level. You're really asking me to do this? It's kind of ruining my desire to just to want good, fun fellowship with people who are like me. I don't know if I want this thing anymore. If this is what you call church, I have some serious questions now. I don't know if I want this. And Paul writes to us who protest in that way because it's the natural human tendency to do that, Paul writes. If you have the attitude of Christ, this Christ of formity towards one another, this heart of a servant towards each other, if you heed these instructions and the power of the Holy Spirit, if you do this, then verse 6 says, that way you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ together with one voice. Wait, what? Church isn't about my own cultural comfort and complacency? Verse 7, so welcome each other, Jews and Gentiles, weak and strong, powerful and powerless, Asians and blacks, natives and whites, Hispanics and Middle Easterners, in the same way that Christ also welcomed you. 
for, for what? For God's glory. For God's glory. Paul's theological conviction, his unwavering commitment to see this unity between Jew and Gentile Christians to worship Jesus together is so that God would be glorified. There's no other end. This is the end. Paul is saying, negotiate everything else, but don't negotiate this. This is a non-negotiable for you. If you do this, the Gentiles, the nations will see this. They will praise God for this. They will place their hope in God. This is, this reminds me of what Pastor T.C. mentioned last Sunday, that the credibility of the church's witness of the gospel hangs on our unity in Christ across cultural, ethnic, racial, and all other divisions and divides. And I say this with a heart of sincerity that I genuinely am thankful to be part of this community where we all know there's no such thing as a, as a perfect church. We know that. There's no such thing as perfect people. But I am so thankful to be here where we have a culture of Christoformity, where we're not afraid to call out the power that we have and the privilege that we have. We're not afraid to lay those out on the table and to surrender those because we see that that's how the world works out there and we're trying to live into and model an alternate society to what the church out there lives. And that's why I'm so glad to call this place home. So inclusion and diversity, they're not just a set of progressive postmodern values. They're premised on that very heart and the mission of God to include the nations, the Gentiles, into one family of Jews and Gentiles. And hear this again. Paul wants to see this at the local church level. Paul is getting into the weeds of how do people who eat meat, sacrifice to idols, worship in the same room as people who don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. I mean, that's getting really into the weeds of things. Right? So this is his non-negotiable desire. In all of Paul's letters, when it comes to this topic, his message is always consistent. He's always encouraging us to be unified. In Galatians 3.28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think of Ephesians 2, where Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. I think of the passages we're reading today, Romans 15. In all of Paul's letters, when it comes to this topic, he does not waver. He wants to see Jews and Gentiles stick together. And the world around us, as in Paul's day, in the Roman Empire then and now, is ruled, this, might, this is a heavy topic, that the powers, both earthly, are ruled by the dark powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. And this is one way that the letter to 
the church in Ephesus shows us that we're not against each other, that it's not our enemies are not flesh and blood people, right? But that the our enemies are against the uh, principalities and powers in the heavenly realms that manifest themselves here on earth. And I'll try this with you. So go with me in your minds to Revelation 7-9 for a moment. Right there you see a picture of the people of God gathered across nations, tribes, people, and language. And we'll be gathered there around the throne of God. We'll be reconciled to God. We'll be reconciled to each other, each other by the blood of the Lamb. But you know who will not be there? The powers and the principalities will not be there. We will be there. We will belong to each other. But the principalities and powers, the enemy, will have no such belonging in that place. I think this is the, the glory of God that Paul refers to. That the glory of God on display when the nations and Jewish Christians are unified under Christ in the same room amidst societies and empires that are stratified, that are divided. All right, you're going to see a little bit of um, the Bible nerd in me come out here for this next section. So we, if we continue the last half of Romans 15, verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul cites uh, these four Old Testament passages in a really repetitive manner. It's all talking about the Gentiles praising God. He cites from all three sections of the Jewish Bible here. Uh, where the Jewish Bible is divided into these three main sections, Torah, or the Law, the Nevim, or the Prophets, and the Ketuvim, or the Writings. And the, the last one, the Ketuvim, the Writings, that refers to the wisdom literature like uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Job. But this is how the Hebrew Bible is broken up into three sections, Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim. When you take the first letter of each of these words, you get the acronym TNK, or Tanakh. Tanakh is another name for the Hebrew Bible. Paul quotes in Romans 15 from each section of the Tanakh. And in, in my own reading and inter interpretation of this, I think Paul does this to really emphasize and establish that the whole of Israel's scriptures, the Tanakh, really does reveal a God who is including the nations into the family of God. Paul wants to make his case from the whole meta-narrative of the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, that this is what this God is doing. So we look at Romans 15, the next slide there, and in Romans 15, verse 9, Paul quotes, or he cites, it's kind of like paraphrase. That's why I thank you, Lord, in the presence of the nations. That's why I sing praises to your name. Well, he draws that from 2 Samuel 22, 50, that reads, that's why I thank you, Lord, in the presence of the nations. That's why I sing praises to your name. Romans 15, 10, rejoice, Gentiles, with his people. He draws that from Deuteronomy 32, from the Torah, Rejoice, you nations, with his people. In 1511 of Romans, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and all the people should sing his praises. 
he draws that from Psalm 117, the Ketuvim, or the writings. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Worship him, all you peoples. Finally, Romans 15, 12, he cites, There will be a root of Jesse who will also rise to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will place their hope in him. He draws that from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the Navim, 11.10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him, and his dwelling will be glorious. And the New Testament does this all the time, uh, especially, I mean, really all over. The Gospels and the New Testament is always citing Old Testament passages. If you have a, a, a print Bible, which I hope we still use print Bibles, <laughs> you'll, you'll often see a little footnote at the bottom for when the New Testament is alluding to or quoting the Old Testament. And so Paul is kind of creating this, uh, these four stanzas of, of praise, and he's drawing them all from each part of the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh. They're all saying the same thing, that the, that the Gentiles will praise God. Gentiles and the nations will praise God because of your unity. As a Hmong American, as, a, as an Asian American in a multi-ethnic context like ours here, I've been reflecting on uh, what it means and, and how ethnic minorities often go through a, a process of negotiating what's called our ethnic identity. Uh, there's a lot of literature and discussion about this out there, uh, but some of the questions that, for myself, that replay in my own mind of how I negotiate my ethnic identity in a multi-ethnic context are things like, to what degree am I mom in this space? To what degree am I American, whatever that means, in this space? Right? How do those two things in me work together uh, to, to create who I am? How is my Hmong heritage uh, invited or, or, or welcomed in, in a multi-ethnic space? And if I really brought that part of myself, would I be recognized as the same person? Or if I really brought that unfiltered Hmong aspect of myself? I'm going on a tangent here. I remember years back, I was, I was serving at a large, uh, predominantly white, white church. And I was at staff there, and we did coffee meetings every Tuesday. And this was probably like six months or so into these coffee meetings. I remember talking to one gal, one lady, and I started telling her a little bit about my story of um, being born in a refugee camp in Thailand and all of this. And she was just like dumbfounded that someone with like really good English could have that story. I started to become like unrecognizable to her. Once I start bringing out my story of being a refugee, of being Hmong and American, people start to go, she, I, her words to me were, uh, you think you know a person. So it, all of that to say, she saw one version of me, right? And there was this whole other side of me that when I do bring that out, most people in a multi-ethnic context will have to kind of do a double take. Is, was that, did he just say that? Right? And so that's kind of an ethnic identity negotiation that a lot of people of color kind of have to go through in a multi-ethnic space. 
But Paul's prayers and his instructions for the weak and the strong in Romans is not that only one faction or one group of people would go through identity negotiation, but that all parties would go through identity negotiation, whether you're the strong or the weak, whether you're the majority or the minority. Paul doesn't want anyone to sit back and sit comfortably while everyone else adapts to them. That would just be a mono-ethnic-led community trying to pass off as a multi-ethnic community. Paul's word for the weak, he encourages them, right? Paul's word for the strong is to welcome the weak. Paul has a word for all of us. My prayer for Roots is that no matter where we identify ourselves with the strong or the weak, is that we would adopt this Christoformity attitude, the attitude of a servant like Jesus as we extend ourselves towards towards the other. And that's a work that we do together, but that's a work that I think we initiate kind of within ourselves. We have to allow ourselves that permission to go there. What I love about the sermon series as we study these big topics about unity here on Sunday mornings, that we actually have a space to live that out with our misfit meals this, uh, that's coinciding with this series. So every Sunday we obviously preach a message and then in the following week we get together in, in homes. Um, TC and Oshida are each hosting a misfit meal. We do a discussion group, a follow-up to the sermon. My wife Alice and I host one at our place Thursdays. And uh, it's in those spaces, those intimate house church spaces, where we get to really live into these instructions that we hear from Paul, where we get to practice Christoformity, and we get to practice the setting aside of our uh, whatever degree of power and privilege that we might have or might not have, right? And we get to live in that space together with our misfit meals. If you're still looking for a place to to a misfit meal, um, talk to TC or myself before you leave here today. We have spots open, at least I do. I imagine that you do too. And um, I know that the Moors meet on Tuesdays in our groups. Uh, My group meets on Thursday at 6.30. So if either of those days work for you, we would love to have people join these misfit meals. So at first... As we close here, I've, I've gone back and forth with whether or not Paul's instructions here, his theology here, is, is one of naivety. Mm-hmm. But if I'm really honest, that Paul could truly believe that different people like Jews and Gentiles could, could become one unified family at the local church level. But as I've wrestled through this, when I realized that first Paul's reasonings for this unity was premised on the mission of God to the to include the Gentiles, right? And second, when I realized that that I am the, those Gentiles, that I am the fruit of Paul's message, that the Gentiles have come to faith and place place their hope in God. That oh my gosh, I'm the evidence of what he's talking about. You all are evidence of what he's talking about. I start to see maybe Paul's maybe Paul's not far off. Maybe this is how it has to be. Right? And what starts off as this naive teaching, what looks like this impossible teaching, actually becomes revelation for us. And it can actually completely reshape how we 
see the church and where the church is going completely reshape how we see each other. I think Paul is inviting us into this difficult but God-glorifying call of a Christoform life with each other, with those who are different from us. And I think as we step foot into that life, I think there's more that we're going to receive than we can possibly ever know right now. So I need to pray with me as we close. God, you are the God of all people. You are the God of all nations. God, your reign has no boundaries. God, you rule over all of creation. Lord, when I think about it, it's absurd that all the nations have one king, one true king, and his name is Jesus. And yet, what sounds like absurdity is this beautiful truth that only you can create, God. Lord, I pray for roots here, for myself, that as we open our hearts to this message, God, that you would be working in us to, uh, to give us um, opportunities to live in a Christ deformity with each other. God, that we wouldn't shy away in fear or in complacency, but God, that your Holy Spirit, for your glory's sake, that you would encourage us to step into those places with each other, believing that you have instructed us, called us to this unity. God, we know, we recognize this is hard work, and that's why only you can do this, Lord. This is not something that humans naturally do by themselves. But Lord, it is our desire as your people to display your glory to the nations as we come together as we live out Christ's deformity as a community here in St. Paul. God, we thank you that your spirit is with us. We thank you that you've given us all that we need to live this out. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.